0: Welcome to Matthew Felix on Air, part two of my interview with Rachel Howard, author of the new novel, The Risk of Us. In the second of two episodes, Rachel and I discuss the fears the adoptive couple has and the incredible challenges they face when interacting with the foster care and adoption systems. I asked Rachel about how she created and sustained the tension felt throughout most of the novel, issues the couple faces with a potential adoptive child, and how our pasts affect our abilities to give and receive unconditional love and whether it's even possible. Thanks for listening. Please remember to subscribe, rate, and review, and enjoy part two of my interview with Rachel Howard, author of the new novel, The Risk of Us. And just kind of contextualizes um, these, this this bigger stuff that we're talking about here. But so before, I just said we we're going to talk about the system. But actually, I, I want to talk about the couple and sort of... Um, their motivations and their sort of gearing up to adopt. I thought it was interesting that they weren't even sure why they wanted to adopt. I thought that was interesting. And I'm going to, there's a quote on page 55. The narrator is saying, What a solid reason to do this, to help someone. In the face of the unanswerable why of parenthood, we could stake ourselves on that justification. So I thought that was so, what is the unanswerable why of parenthood, not being a parent? And two, I just thought it was interesting justification because it seems like, yeah, you're helping this kid. Do you need to justify So can you just speak to that a little bit? I thought that was interesting. That
1: is so interesting because that actually was a passage that came in, in, uh, uh, the revisions I did were fairly surgical, which Uh I'm sure will never happen to me again. Hmm. But I also had some terrific feedback from two agents that I worked with before working with my editor at Uh Mifflin. And that passage came in because I was working with this, wonderful agent um of the two agents she was younger and um in her 20s and i so i think that w- w- ha, your relationship to the why parenthood it sh- i think it's so contingent on what time of your life uh-huh, you're in uh-huh. and it was great to have her eye on the novel because she was saying why do they want to be parents at all? Interesting. <laughs> Which yeah. actually hadn't yeah. occurred to me until yeah. that point in the draft. Okay. Uh huh. And that uh-huh. uh, that brought in some of those meditations Questions in that yeah. in that chapter. Okay. I love that. <laughs> I love that. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think that um, part of what bonded Sebastian and the narrator of this novel is that they both were people who deeply wanted to be parents in an irrational or no, not needed to be rationalized place in their minds for many years before they met each other. Mm -hmm. And I think there's that passage in there about how she, she saw his vintage children's books and she knew that he wanted a kid. Right. Heidi. Yeah. 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 So they definitely have always wanted it. Yeah. But not everyone has. Yeah. No, exactly. yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Um, so, also before we talk about this system, I wanted to talk about then. Okay, so so they want to have kids. So they, you know, they they they've known this for a long time, if not almost always, like you said. But uh, they also <clears throat> there's a lot of fear associated with adoption, and this is before they even know Marisa, just in general. And so one of the things that I think is really relevant about the book, one of the many many things that's relevant about the book, is how you highlight the the fears that they have going into this, which I assume are fears that so many. Who and who would be going into this would have. So, I'm going to talk about some of the things that, some of the fears that that um, that potential adoptive parents have as they start to go into this, uh, relative to the child and relative to actually having this new yeah. person in there?
1: Well, <laughs> I mean, I think it's. I mean, it's only healthy to be realistic going in. So that's yeah. part of the reason I wrote the book. I mean, I mean, actually, the only reason I wrote the book is because, to be perfectly honest...
0: That's what we expect <laughs> here. <laughs> <laughs>
1: when you're a writer and uh, you're, you love fiction from such a young age and you love what fiction can do and that it can hold impossible to reconcile things and it can hold them in this larger sphere of reconciliation. <laughs> like, when a story comes to you that holds that that's what fiction is for. So that's what you do. Yeah. And then whatever comes of that, you can't even think about because if you bring any agenda into it, it won't be doing that thing anymore mm-hmm. that fiction can do. It mm-hmm. will be doing the agenda because mm-hmm. so you had to absolutely, you cannot bring any agenda into it. Yeah. Um, so it's funny cause people ask me like, why did you write the book? And did you do it because you wanted to help people who right. might become foster right. parents or to encourage more foster parents? And and now I can say, I do have a desire that I hope it encourages more people to do this kind of adopting,
0: but that wasn't the motivation
1: but I c- to be completely honest, I could not have any agenda while I was writing it
0: and yet, as you're which and I totally get that and i and I believe that, but simply by virtue of the story you're telling the the, the, the characters do have certain fears, and those fears do happen to coincide with reality and and one that I found really interesting is it's already on page three. What if, what happened, you know, your writer friend is, or the writer friend of the protagonist is asking what happens if you don't click? And I assume that that's gotta be a fear that so many adoptive parents have. What if we bring this kid in and even if it's a great kid, he or she is a great kid and we don't, that bond doesn't form. Yeah. Um, so I and, and then the narrator says, quote, I'm not even gonna imagine what you're suggesting yeah. to herself. She's saying, I can't even go there. Yeah. Because it's so daunting, even that possibility, right?
1: Yeah. So even though I had no agenda about yeah. this, I yeah. mean I did do a lot of thinking right. about these right. questions and these these fears as these characters and as people exactly. in life experience them. And that was one thing that was really interesting to me about this kind of adoption that um I think you're more present to the Full range of possibilities, including the ones where you're like, "How could I even live with myself if that happened?" Mm-hmm. When you meet someone and you say, "Well, these other five people already tried," right? Uh, I what could judge them, right? I could judge them and say, "Well, they just must not have been great, loving people." But uh, what if they were, and they really tried, and that was their best shot, and they're living with the unimaginable? What makes me think that is number six. And then you had to just, I mean, you had to just decide that you're going to live with that possibility. Yeah. Um, but what was interesting to me was uh, for uh, the parents, would-be parents in this situation, that question is like live and in front of them. Mm-hmm. Whereas to a lot of parents who are giving birth or having biological children, I mean, I don't know because I haven't, but from it seems like the assumption is Uh, that of course they're going to have that bond. And of course they're going to love this child unconditionally. Yeah. Which actually, though, is not not guaranteed in that situation either.
0: Yeah. Yeah, but we (laughs) assume. But we assume. But there's some...
1: You know, I'm, I'm, I'm very influenced by Buddhism, mm-hmm. uh, in my writing life as well as in my personal life. And, you know, we go around living with these delusions and these <laughs> yeah. false assumptions. I don't, I don't, but I hear them. that a lot
0: of people do. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And that, yeah. I mean, and
1: that's one of them though, that like, well, if you have a biological child, you're very in control of that situation and the bond is going to naturally happen and it's going to be a beautiful relationship. Whereas if you do this other kind of bonding, it's going to be more risky, I mean I don't know how you could like statistically quantify the risks but you know just this situation just kind of removes the veil
0: yeah 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 removing the veil okay so let's talk about the system Uh, what are some of the challenges that you learned about the system and I have a list here that I can help you with but just off the top of your head because there's so much about the system that's just kind of insane Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's kind of the worst of bureaucracy in a lot of ways. And then. Um, so, yeah. So. So what did you learn and what did the, What did the characters learn? The, the couple, what did they learn as they embark upon this journey? Mm-hmm. Some of the highlights.
1: Uh, well, the thing that ends up being the most difficult for the, the narrator of the book, the woman, is just the level of surveillance. Yeah. Um, yeah. That there's a lot of players in the mix. And mm-hmm. you're again, like why this was right for fiction, trying to create this intimate bond and also like have authority of like i'm i'm going to be the parent now and step up to that and meanwhile you've got two or three social workers mental health care workers various therapists casas you've got all of these people watching Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's Mm -hmm. an intense way to try to make an intimate bond
0: right and sometimes they're competing with each other Mm-hmm. Sometimes these agencies are telling; they're giving the protagonists, the, the the couple, conflicting information. They're sort of competing for authority, and then so so the the couple's kind of like like you said. First of all, there's the way we want to have this intimate connection. How can we do that when we're being watched by five different state or national or county entities? But then on top of it, when they're getting conflicting information, um, and then. Um, One thing that was really interesting along these lines, a a particular sort of angle on this or not angle, but aspect of this was the, uh, I'm scrolling in my notes to remember the name, the new paradigm. Mm. Can you talk to that a a little bit? (laughs) That's the thing. It sounded like it was probably, again, Uh, this is where fiction and nonfiction meet. Uh, tell me a little bit about that, because that just drove me crazy.
1: This is like the only place I can talk about this. Talk about legitimately it. Yeah. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so that was part of my research uh-huh. um, from both being uh, a parent in this situation myself prior yep. to writing the book and yeah. then also working on the book, doing more research on this. Um, I actually wrote a column recently about this book and um, they it wouldn't get published by the particular publication interesting it, yeah it's too touchy sort uh, of thing. Or? Be- well yeah too touchy interesting for the parenting section you know which needs to be softer uh-huh. and just you know you don't want to get into like investigative journalism <laughs> yeah yeah but you know it turns out that this is particular parenting book uh, set of parenting books um by an author i mean can i i can say his name here it's uh it's b brian post and and he co-authored a book called mm-hmm. logic and Beyond logic and consequences, and then he has a series of his own parenting books. They are uh, dominate. Uh, They're uh, often recommended in the field. Mm -hmm. And then it turns out um, there's been a a Virginia Pilot expose about him advertising himself with false credentials and being ordered to desist in that. Okay, so that part of the story is true. That part is true. Yeah. 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 That part is true. Yeah. And (laughs) so. Yeah. So um, um, certain um, certain players may be pushing certain parenting books or parenting advice very hard. hmm. And if you're the would be adoptive parent in this situation, you're being told, well, we all hope that this adoption is going to go through, but we can't guarantee that it will. It's also in part the court that decides. Mm hmm. And I have the power to move the child to another placement. And you're, th- you're thinking, well, what happens if they don't see me following this parenting book to the letter that I can't stomach?
0: Well, and in the <laughs> book, and I assume I suspect this is true, but in the book you talk about or the um, the narrator talks about how a woman, I think a foster parent or an adoptive parent, I think it was in Virginia, didn't follow the book and the child was taken away from them. Yeah, I don't know if that really happened. That's
1: true. So if you yeah. google Virginia pilot uh B Brian post all of the documented things about this will come up. Even though <laughs>
0: so even though he was exposed as not necessarily being qualified to write these kind of books, agencies were still requiring foster parents and adoptive parents to follow his his guidelines. Yeah, yeah. Which adds again to the point of the the confusion that these poor parents who are trying to do this are subjected to, I mean, what better example of, of just mixed messages and yes. should we really be doing this or not? But they're making us do this. If we don't do it, even though now we know he's not an expert, we might lose the kid. So I guess we should, the, the thing that you quote in the book or cite in the book, which again, I don't know if this part's fiction or nonfiction is that this guy apparently said that they need to, um, that parents, <laughs> it's funny, but it's horrible. So it's really not funny, but that parents should be drinking from baby bottles at the dinner table yeah it was something like that
1: right yeah Uh, yeah and that that's also documented in the in the uh in the news article interesting though just all of this stuff being so subtle and difficult and that's why again why it makes a good fiction yeah in real life not in i have actually found that the most important thing in this kind of adoption is making this intimate physical connection mm-hmm. which could be something like drinking baby bottles to get like things that sound
0: absurd crazy on the and absurd
1: that you would do with a 10 or 11 year old actually can be a highly like Bonding. or the only thing that makes that kind of bond interesting but where it becomes difficult is how can you force that kind of intimacy on someone? I mean, so they have to come to it in their own way in my own life, not in the book. There was a moment where I found myself in a room with five different players in the system and two on speakerphone. And we were talking through something that had happened in our family life. And I suddenly just said, Oh my God, I understand now there's an inherent tension here. There's me needing to, step up and say, I am this child's parent. I know what she needs. I'm just going to claim that. I don't need anyone else. I am the ultimate authority on this. Right. And there's all of you doing your jobs and trying to be protective and within your constraints and needing to oversee me. And we're both in the positions that we're in because we have to be. And And,
0: ostensibly for the best interest, in the best interest of the the child. In the best interest of the child. Ostensibly. Yeah.
1: And yet, Somehow I've got to break it. I've yeah. got to just step up.
0: Yep. <laughs> yes. Okay. You don't realize it, but that was an amazing segue. Oh, <laughs> because my next section here is about tension. And so, um, so it's not surprising given the themes, given the system, given the trauma, all the, all these different things we've already talked about that the there's, there's tension from start to finish in this book and it's a sustained tension. And when we met at the uh, stranger than fiction reading series, you read from a passage from somewhere in the middle of the book, not in the beginning. And then when I saw you read a second time and I joked, oh, you're not going to read the same passage you did last time, not intending to be an ass, but ultimately <laughs> being an ass because be you, were like, you were like, oh, actually I was going to. And then you got up and you didn't. And selfishly, I am glad that you didn't because you read the very beginning of the book the second time. And I told you this afterwards, but I was surprised that tension that I had heard in that piece from the middle of the book at the first reading I heard that right from the get-go in this book and when you did the 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 reading from the beginning and i thought oh that's that's impressive she she starts off with that and and then i read the book and you maintain it throughout the whole book and i'm not the only one who feels that way i'm going to quote a couple of the reviews um jamie quattro author of i want to show you more said quote i often had to stop reading to catch my breath now ordinarily if i read that as a review i would think that's hyperbole But it's not. I mean, the book is very. And then uh, Julie Shears, author of Jesus Land, says, quote, this book reads like a thriller. So can you talk to me about and this is part of of, I, I want to know just in general, but then selfishly, I want to know from a writing perspective, from a craft perspective, a little bit about how you not only create that tension, but sustain that tension, because that could be really you could blow that. You know, you could overdo it. You could underdo it. Um, And usually that sort of tension comes in sort of bursts and here it's very even and I'm on edge most of the time that I'm reading this book. So can you just tell us a little bit about that?
1: Yeah. uh, So the two things that (laughs) were really helpful craft wise. Yeah. uh, the, The pontalist idea that I was telling you about that. Okay, I'm never going to conflate things here, but there's just going to be. A moment of something really painful, a moment of something really beautiful, painful, beautiful, and they exist and they keep going side by side. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that keeps the tension.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, the other thing I discovered, um, as part of the impetus was feeling, I have an opportunity here, and this was, was kind of a hard choice, to write about this in an unsentimental way, mm-hmm. which I think mm-hmm. is ultimately going, I hope, to reveal some truth. Um, and that is kind of a hard decision because when you're writing about children, we tend towards sentimentality because we love children because we should, because they're innocent because because they're they're innocent because they are vulnerable. Right. And yet when we get so accustomed to that sentimentality, it has a way of covering up certain truths that coexist with the more beautiful things. Mm -hmm. And so I was, I was really thinking Maybe this could do something that I find useful in the world to remove that sentimentality. Mm -hmm. And so then what helped was to think of, okay, the first pass on writing this full draft, which I decided also to write quickly. And I think that helped. That just pressured the selection Mm -hmm. of the scenes and the moments um, and helped me just really walk that plot line in a tight way. Um, I wrote it in a whole draft in six months. Oh, wow. Yeah, I actually, I had thought it was seven or eight. And then I went back to my notes the other day and going through those journals that I just told uh-huh. you about, I put in a fire safe. I that realized now it was safe and was sound in case
0: anyone is worried. We have, a, <laughs> we have established they are safe yeah. and sound in three different safes. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah.
1: but on that draft, um, I thought I had to write um, dialectically against the sentimentality. So mm-hmm. this is where, because I, I actually feel like we only know truth by untruth. I mean, I feel like we don't know truth in itself, but when we see something that's untrue and we call it out, then we know truth burningly mm-hmm. by contrast. Now you're
0: getting a little Buddhist it's, again. I, think. I know. Yeah. Yeah. But <laughs> and, yeah, and, I get it. Yeah. And, and, I get it. and
1: so with that first draft, I thought, I'm going to just write as against this. I'm going to have a sense of what the sentimentality would be, and I'm going to write against it.
0: Interesting.
1: And then in the next draft, I started bringing in the beauty. Uh, and then I could kind of calibrate it to keep the tension.
0: Mm-hmm. That is fascinating. And I think you did amazing an amazing job of that calibration. Like I said, that was one of the things that really just stood out for me. So thank you for sharing that. Um, a couple of other questions since we're now on craft. And we alluded to this earlier or mentioned this earlier, but we didn't explore this. Just a little bit more about... I don't know. Maybe we have talked enough about how you wrote it from the perspective of the narrator. But could you elaborate maybe a little bit more, though, on on this shifting perspective that she uses going from addressing her husband to uh, to Marisa? And then that that was just interesting to me, that shifting perspective and how, again, from sort of a craft perspective, the challenges of that and, and the choice to do that just some thoughts on that.
1: Yeah. Well, the choice of that is part of what made it work. I think like mm-hmm. and part of what I was conscious of, okay, this is a constraint on it. That's really going to help me get yeah. this draft down. Yeah. And it was in
0: six months. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it By will, the way, will
1: never happen in my life again. Don't say that. And- <laughs>
0: don't say that. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I, there's a theme here in the book that we're not going to talk about, but there's a theme of not jinxing things, right? Right. Right. So don't yeah. jinx it. Cause you've said <laughs> that like three times. That's it. Three times the charm. Let's just throw out. This could happen again you can have an idea that's this like contained and there is just this and you crank out a draft in six months because the idea is just so right it could happen again you know you're right you're right Let's you throw that never out there rule out possibilities no you're right okay <laughs> now that i've got you back on track with that you were saying about perspective and the two different
1: oh and so um actually though that was um in large part inspired by Ginny offal i mean i want to give due credit to the influence of yeah. other writers and finding your models mm-hmm. and um, embracing them and not being afraid to do that and, and then hoping they approve later. <laughs> but <laughs> uh-huh. but Ginny uh, Ophel's Department of Speculation was a book that I just loved when it came out. And uh, so the spareness of that book, but then also the way she used point of view to enact the conflict. Um, she also uses uh, a woman addressing her husband at the outset Although she doesn't, she doesn't do it to the. Uh, it, kind of, it kind of falls off, and you sort of just feel like you're just reading. Then you 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 lose your awareness of that addressee mm-hmm. more in mm-hmm. her book. Mm-hmm. And then what she does is um, she reaches a moment in the plot where um, the husband has cheated on her, and she shifts point of view. It's no longer an I speaker; it becomes the wife and she, and that enacts the woman feeling in shock and mm-hmm. disassociated, disassociated from herself exactly. and outside of herself. Yeah. That sounds powerful. It's, yeah. and it's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And then, uh, when she comes back, when she gets over the shock, um, that's when it enters the, the first, uh, person. The first uh-huh. person. And then she makes a few kind of, uh, overt references to thinking about point of view within that novel. Mm. And so I, I read that book, honestly, six times Uh while I was writing this one to channel certain elements of it. And so then that that was what sort of gave rise to, okay, well, what if I have, she's trying to talk to her husband and then she's trying to talk to this, this little girl, Marisa, and then she's trying to figure out How do I go from me speaking to you and me speaking to you to all of us having a connected relationship? Mm
0: -hmm. Triangulating, I think, is you talk about the triangle. Yeah. At some point, at least. Yeah. Yeah. So you just mentioned the last question sort of specific to craft. You just mentioned, I don't know exactly how you said it, writing sparingly, I think is what you were saying, Mm -hmm. something along those lines. And again, the pointalism i say it different you say you say it differently plant your what french do
1: you is much better than mine no i don't <laughs> i don't, I don't speak No, french. i'm
0: assuming you're saying it better but how do you say it
1: i said pontalism, Point, pontalism. I, well i
0: was i just assumed it was pointillism because it's little points i think you're so right so i could be co- no but do you, do you realize quick aside um first of all i want to say hi susan aaron and matthew matthew's just joined but i was saying the, the title to my new book wrong for like six months <laughs> So I don't know, which is, that's embarrassing too, because now it's recorded everywhere and I, but, uh, so you might be right. I just, I, I don't know. But anyway, what was I trying to get there? The point, oh yeah. So my question, total distraction. My question though was about the the sparingly, Hmm. uh, writing sparingly. And I loved, um, and again, again, I don't know, maybe there's nothing to add here, but I loved how you structured each chapter is sort of a moment, mm-hmm. right? And then there's little section break after little section break. So each little section within a chapter is two or three paragraphs, sometimes more. Um, any other comments on that? Or I don't know, again, maybe we've kind of covered that. I liked that really kept things moving. It did keep it spare, but with enough and, and condensed, it's like you got, what we needed to get in mm-hmm. those moments, which mm-hmm. of course is so hard to do, right? To get it down to those, just the essential. Yeah. Um, and you said you wrote really quickly and that was part of it. Anything else to add or have we kind of covered that?
1: Oh, no, I mean, that is my my method. And mm. that is where a lot of the work goes is to finding that one image or that one word that... That sh- that shows it. I mean, it's the show don't tell cliche, but, um, but it's so to, true. to me, yeah, and to me, my own take on it is I, I want things to always be three dimensional. So I want it to be that I as author and then the reader, we are sort of standing next to each other. Both looking at what is being put into the space of the story. Mm-hmm. I don't want to be explaining things to the reader. I want them to see what I have decided to show them. We are side by side looking at what I put in that space. Right. And so for that to work, I need to get it down to that spareness so that that one charged thing can yep. be there to look at.
0: Yep. So, again, in in the um, one thing for me that I think created some of the some of the tension, in addition to what you've already described, is there's a lot of back and forth. And what I mean about like a certain idea or issue or and and along the lines of what you were just saying, but we're experiencing it with the narrator. And she's trying to figure out, again, whether X is going to happen or whether Y is right or whatever, again, the issue or, or challenge might be. But because we're experiencing with her, we don't get the answer, so we share her, her tension. And so I, a couple things there are a couple, there are several, but a couple things just to call out of examples of that back and forth while I was sort of on the edge of my seat. First of all, there's the question, of course, the couple is, you know, are, are we going to adopt or not? That's the obvious, the obvious big question. Uh, but Marisa is also sending them really mm-hmm. mixed signals, yeah. which just further as if it's not already complicated enough. Can you speak to that a little bit? Cause that was interesting as yeah. well. Well, that
1: yeah. was another one of those elements where I was like, Oh, this is why this is good for fiction <laughs> right, because right. the assumption would be the, the, the cliche of it. The, you know, the prefabricated idea of this scenario would be that the child just wants permanent parents. Right. And, um, straightforward. That, that's partly true, but it's not the whole truth. Because if you're a person who has learned how to be an independent operator and you... For your
0: survival. For your
1: survival, uh, but you know that that sort of freedom and self-possession, you don't want to give that up. And so you're going to be at war within yourself. There's going to be moments where you really want to compromise to be part of this family because it is a huge compromise to become a part of a family. And even for a seven-year-old child, there's going to be moments where you're like... "Eh, Actually, I was pretty happy being an independent operator. Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't want to do this.
0: Well, and especially if she's already been or any child, any foster child's already been in multiple families. They don't, they have not worked out. They're not going to just assume, I would guess, that family five or six is the right one. They're mm-hmm. probably going to be that much more reticent to trust that this is the right one. And so, and I'm just thinking out loud now. I hadn't really thought of this beforehand, but so part of that is probably testing this i knew she was testing the couple obviously but probably testing to see okay is this really the family that i want to settle with yeah Mm -hmm.
1: um and then but also like it's it's hard to even know uh and this is i mean a seven-year-old doesn't even if they're not thinking of those and and also like i thought it interesting the the woman the narrator with her uh, ex-husband who she tested in those ways, even at 22, actually, it's not that different. You don't know when am I testing this versus when do I actually just want to still be an independent operator, right? There's so many recesses of your mind. That and I, you...
0: <laughs> I loved that parallel too. I loved how you, how you made those parallels. And I'm going to say more, more of that because it's so interesting. I want the readers to experience that. I do want to throw out one quote though, that Marisa says, just to give listeners and viewers an idea of the kind of things that she's doing and also, but more, even more specifically how it's a struggle for, for the narrator on page 137, she says, quote, and this is the narrator speaking, I think of our hardest day when Marisa, uh, when Marisa drew, sorry, wrong. Yeah. When Marissa drew a hurtful picture of the protagonist. Oh, sorry. That's you. That's not a quote. Let me try this over. Okay. <laughs> quote, I think of our hardest day. Okay. And so this hardest day is when Marisa is, she draws this horrible picture of her potential adoptive mom and the mom is really hurt. So now going back to the quote, I could not even look at you. And the next day it was like, you'd had amnesia, you're the best mommy. And suddenly I had amnesia too. Mm. So I love that because it shows that quote just shows both sides of it, right? The mom is just hurt and devastated and angry and whatever the, the mixture of emotions. And then the next day the kid has moved on and she's being her cute little self. And so the mom moves on and it's just this Mm -hmm. tough situation. To, 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 to say the least. Okay. So, And that's just one example. But another really poignant sort of back and forth issue that's really central to this story is, so there's the question of whether or not to adopt. Obviously, that's the overarching one. But underlying that is the question of can, will they even like her? And love her. Mm -hmm. So there's the thing about clicking. I guess this is just clicking only on much deeper. You know, at one time, at one point, I don't have a quote here, but at one point the, um, the, the protagonist is talking with her husband and basically she's like, yeah, you know, I love her. And the husband's not quite ready to say that. And he's not even sure he likes her because of all the stuff that they're putting her through, putting them through, Mm -hmm. um, I just thought, okay, but then I guess my next point though, related to that, besides the fact that that whole part was interesting to me is to me, it seems like that's really the question of whether or not uh, that's an illustration and the the representation of whether or not unconditional love is really possible. That question, right? She's put us through all of this and, um, I'm not even sure I like her. Never mind, Can I actually love her given, given all this? Mm Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, I do have a thought on that because this was something that was really important to me. I, so I'm uh, very influenced by Buddhism, but also by Christianity as I experienced it at Grace Cathedral yep. Episcopal in San Francisco, which is a uh, very uh, non-fundamentalist. Um, some people would even say relativist and I'm <laughs> like, yes, we are relativists because uh-huh. guess what? The life is very relative. Yes. yes. Um, <laughs> but I was very influenced by that. And there was a preacher there named Dean Allen Jones, and uh, he had a sermon that he would give off and he would touch on, you know, this idea of what if love is not a sentimental feeling? What if, what does it mean to think of love as a policy instead of a sentimental feeling?
0: A policy.
1: Yeah. And so, because feelings come and go, like everything, I mean, actually everything that we experience, in, including our very selves, come and go constantly. right. right feelings come and go so if you're going to tie the idea of unconditional love to this wanting to be attached to someone or a stirring mm. in the heart for someone
0: setting yourself it's not going
1: to be there for any relationship
0: mm-hmm.
1: i mean you are uh, hopefully going to you know get to a point of bonding where you know, okay, I'm going to have these moments where I don't feel that, but I still have this obligation to you because I've decided that you are as important as I am to myself. Right. And that's where they need to get to. But those moments of the heart no longer fluttering are always going to happen. (laughs) Right.
0: Right. You don't want to get attached to that cute, innocent little girl as that that being the source of the attachment. It's got to be the whole yeah, I mean, yeah. there's
1: a romance and then yeah. there's a much There's the honeymoon deeper, period to talk about. yeah, And a romance and a honeymoon are, are maybe, you know, passing stages on the way to love.
0: Right. <laughs> Hopefully in this case in particular. Yeah. Okay, so uh, I'm going to move on here because we're definitely running out of time. But uh, there are a couple of things we have to talk about. So we're just going to keep going for a little while longer. (laughs) And one of those things is, you know, we just talked about some of the backs and forths and how, um, how that keeps that tension going and we're with the narrator and we're not sure, but another thing that's really distinctive is the befores and afters. There are a lot of very distinctive and and I'll throw out some examples. So there's, uh, the narrator's now ex-husband, which is the before, and then there's the after now with the current husband. There's Marissa, Marissa's life before foster care and after once she's in the system And then after being in the system and then when she's potentially going to be adopted, living with the family, there's married life before Marisa, there's married life after Marisa. And so this is all discussed kind of in those distinct terms. It's not just, yeah, sometimes you talk about the past. I mean, there's, there's a lot of juxtaposition of, of that. Uh, there's even the husband goes from being Sebastian to daddy Mm -hmm. once she comes in again, showing this very clear cut delineation in time and circumstance. Um, So to me, it seems as if a lot of this book is about our relationship with the past and how the past influences the present and all of that sort of mingling and coming together. Uh, So my question to you, which is a huge one, so brace yourself, (laughs) is why does the past matter?
1: Hmm. <laughs> Do you know that famous Faulkner quote? What is it? Uh, the past, uh, the past is never gone. It's not even past. Can someone Google that right? for us? <laughs> no, I'm yeah. getting it incorrect. Yeah. But that's another quote that, that Dean Allen Jones like to call on a lot.
0: Okay. <laughs> but yeah. So in this context, cause like I said, I know that's a whole, that's a whole web that's a yeah. whole, uh, podcast series ruminating, ruminating on that, but just kind of, um, Yeah. Thoughts on how it matters in this story or this context?
1: Uh, whew, Well, I mean, I think just three people bringing all of who they are into trying to create this new relationship.
0: Yes. <laughs> and how, and so really my secret question here, the underlying question from that is, how does the past play into this idea of the unconditional love? Mm. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> and I'm going to, so I'll ask you more specifically. So Is it necessary to deal with or overcome our past in order to be able to experience and give unconditional love? Which is really what I'm asking.
1: This is a really interesting question because um, so first off, to me, the book is also in large part about how important it is to be in the present. Mm -hmm. And what does it really mean to be in the present? And unconditional love actually being that coming into the present. Is that... Part of the policy is just making a decision to be present with this person. Not and judging
0: based on the past. Not, y- yeah, mm-hmm, yeah, yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And what what do they seem to need from me now and what can I give to them and w- where is the boundary of self porous here mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and really responding to just what's in front of you rather than the theory of what you're being told is in front of you or what you think should be in front of you
0: Mm -hmm. or what you're projecting Uh, or what you're
1: projecting so um all of that i mean i think it's it's crucial to the three of them to be able to find a way to do that to come to their bond yep um let's see what was the other part of your question (laughs)
0: That was really it. I was just, I was asking you that question in stages. Uh, My real question was, you know, was that last one? Go ahead. Well,
1: just um, the other thing I I think I find really interesting. um, Again, I like, I think my temperament as a writer is I really like to push back against assumptions. Mm -hmm. And when I find an assumption in the culture, then I know I have something to work with Uh because I'm working against it. Um, And so you were describing the narrator and her own trauma and these concerns about, is her own trauma going to be re-triggered? And one thing I was really interested in working with in this book is this idea that we have right now in our culture of trauma as defining us, Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) which I think think is well-intentioned because it's to honor that trauma does continue to play out in our lives and have profound effects on us. On the other hand, I feel like the culture takes it so far that it's as though like the person like caught a virus that now you have PTSD forever and this is I who am PTSD exactly I am PTSD right. and then you take it on as an identity right. and that becomes sort of can become self-fulfilling mm-hmm. and my fear is it can become self-fulfilling for foster kids who are capable of so much more resilience then, then we may realize in, if we're in this well-intentioned way trying to attach these disorders and identities upon them, which they right. then feel us projecting upon them, which they then take on as like, well, this must be my destiny, that I'm right. a broken person. Right. And so one interesting aspect of the narrator is that she honestly feels that even though she went through all of that in her childhood and uh, saw her father murdered before her own eyes, that, that she... Uh, Has worked through it. She's like in a profound way faced it and it may still be present in her life, but it's not defining who she is and it's not, it's not being re-triggered in ways that are sort of, you know, driving her interactions with her relationships without her realizing it. No, because she
0: says, quote, oh, I'm sorry. No, no, no. Well, she says, because sometimes with hard work, people do get over it. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And... (laughs) That's a quality of myself that I gave (laughs) to this narrator, which I then had to like, again, try to drop the agenda and just work with it as a story element. But I thought it was an interesting story element because I thought the conventional way of telling this story would be about her having her own trauma re-triggered. And then it would be about how we're never really free of trauma Mm -hmm. and it becomes who we are. And it's this awful trap there. And I just um, have a more hopeful experiential sense Mm -hmm. of, uh, human capability. <laughs>
0: Amen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. So I want to say really quickly. So we're already an hour and a half. But oh, wow. I yeah. can't believe that. <laughs> I know. Isn't that good? That's a good sign, right? It, it, when we get to an hour and a half and don't know how it happened, wow. that's a good sign. And I still have a couple other questions. If, and like I said, unless you have to go someplace, but no. I've got you trapped in here with the lights and stuff, so you can't go anywhere. I do want to throw out though, if anyone has questions, now would be the time to throw them um, our way. I'm going to ask her a couple more things. Um, so feel free to, uh, to throw those our way on Facebook, uh, through direct message. But, uh, okay. I'm not going to give any spoilers away about the ending. I do just want to say though, that I did not know how it was going to end and that, and again, I still had that tension of this could go either way, or this could go three or four or five different ways. And I thought you very adeptly and convincingly pulled off the ending. So thank you for that crafted the ending. (laughs) So the last big question I'm gonna ask you, not quite as big as why is the past important, but close. (laughs) Actually, maybe this is bigger, brace yourself. I don't know, maybe this is bigger. So you, excuse me, you set off to write this novel as an exploration of unconditional love. Like that was the main, one of the reasons you wanted to look at that theme. We know how the unconditional love plays out in the novel itself, in the story itself. Readers will, they'll see that firsthand. But how did, what did you learn? How did it change your perception and understanding, if at all, I assume it did, of unconditional love, going through the process of actually writing this book? Did that change how you think of, see, experience unconditional love, including whether or not it's even actually possible?
1: Yeah, uh, it did. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) And it's kind of interesting because, uh, so you were asking before about the difference between nonfiction and fiction. And um, this book does feel to me very different from the memoir. Um, and that there, I, it, there wasn't a catharsis to writing this book for me. Whereas mm-hmm. with the memoir about my, my father's unsolved murder, I really did feel like I was writing it because I had to, because I had to figure out something about myself sure. because I needed to have a catharsis that moved me out of one story in my life and into hopefully future stories mm-hmm, of my life. Mm-hmm. And the book actually did that. Mm. And I think memoir is great for doing that. Yeah. I, I always like to yeah. tell people like memoir is like if it's therapy great it's therapy plus you have art and therapy at the same time right let's embrace them both
0: <laughs> just make sure you get good writing quality thrown in there yeah, Right. right well that's and right they're, and they're all good if you're doing
1: your therapy yeah. and then the, the quality of it rises to the level of art then it's i don't believe in that denigrating like well memoir is just therapy because yeah. if, if it rises to the level of art then right. it does and if it had therapeutic effects too then bonus. <laughs> yeah. well, that's what we call but a win-win. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but um, that that wasn't the case in writing the novel. There was nothing therapeutic or cathartic about it. But it was a kind of laboratory for me of thinking through these really challenging spiritual questions mm-hmm. and coming to new ways of thinking about them. And so most of, you know, what I've been saying today is as a, just result, because of a result of using this story as kind of a laboratory for those questions. And, um, but I, I did come to feel that, uh, yeah, absolutely. Unconditional love is possible.
0: I'm glad that's your conclusion. <laughs> all right. That's a great way to end today. We have just determined Unconditional love is possible. <laughs> I love that. And readers, listeners, watchers um, can come probably to that conclusion through reading this book themselves or at least do a lot more reflection on their own related to that. Um, I don't know firsthand anything about foster care or adoption. I don't know anything firsthand, but I will say that it's hard for me to imagine that this wouldn't. This book wouldn't greatly benefit anyone who's thinking about it, who's already been through it, whether it's... Um, you know, to, 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 from an informational standpoint, from a sort of preparing them standpoint, from a things to think about standpoint, but then also, of course, just anyone who wants to read a compelling and moving story. So thank you for sharing all that. And thank you for, thank you for writing it. Well, thank and you thanks you so for coming much. here to, to talk about it today. A uh, quick, quick couple administrative questions before we sign off. So you just did a tour. You just did some readings. I know you've done a couple other podcasts. Is there anything imminent coming up that we want to share? Or are you, you're, I know you're back to writing a new book. So is that the focus? Or are you still out making the rounds and we need to share anything?
1: Um, no, I'm just primarily in the book Um I am teaching at the Squaw Valley Community of Writers Conference in okay. a couple of weeks, July, okay. and yep. uh, and reading and on panels there. And I I will just say that's a great conference, along with a Lit Camp conference mm-hmm. that you're also familiar with that mm-hmm. I've been to in the past. Yep. And yep. so, yeah. all
0: right, keep keeping busy. <laughs> okay, so let me just throw out uh, RachelHoward.com is your website, and um, thank you very much for being here. Thank you. Thanks. All right that is all for today uh thanks again to my guest rachel howard author of the risk of us and i'm going to fix this microphone it has been driving me crazy for the past (laughs) hour and a half uh no show next week but the following week june 30th my guest will be uh guide dogs for the blind ceo christine benninger thanks to wordspace studios for hosting me they again are at wordspacestudios.com thank you for watching and listening if you like the show Would you please share on social media and subscribe, rate, and review wherever you watch or listen? It really helps, and I really appreciate it. For more about me, my website is at matthewfelix.com, and links to my social media, books, other podcasts, and all the rest can be found there. If you have any comments, ideas for the show, or just want to say hello, I can be reached at felixonair at matthewfelix.com. Thanks again for watching and listening, and have a great week.